chapter 9, the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. I do believe that we had announced as a theme for this month prayers that change those who pray them. And we started in on that first teaching, it was entitled Learning to Pray, We're looking at the Transfiguration, chapter 9 of Luke, verse 28. I'm going to read through verse 32. title of the message this evening is Sleepy Christians. And it came to pass, about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. Behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. When they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. So verse 32 again. But they that were with him, talking about Peter, were heavy with sleep. This is why we've entitled this Sleepy Christian. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, it is our privilege to be able to look into the word. We want you to talk to us clearly tonight. Lord, we want this to be a time where we can have fellowship with you. We are so appreciative of all the things you've done for us. Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen, Amen. There are thousands of people who pray every day who are unaffected by their own prayers. By that I mean they don't believe what they're praying. They don't believe the prayer they're reading. And the reason that is not a good thing is because in the Scripture, if we learn anything about prayer, that prayer is one thing God wants us to do. It gives us an opportunity to talk with Him. At no time in Scripture has prayer ever been something that is strictly a ritual, except when you deal with the Pharisees. But prayer is personal and private communication with the Lord, and you have every expectation of believing that not only does He hear you, but He also listens to what you have to say. Now, in pulpits across America and around the world, there will be people who'll stand up and get a certain inflection in their voice and they'll read from a sheet of paper and that will be their prayer for the, for the, uh, the morning session. There are people that when they sit down to eat and with their family, they'll teach them to uh, pray a little prayer or, or, or something like that, you know, but uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's something coming from the heart. It can become a ritual. But when I talk about prayer, I'm speaking particularly of you, out of your heart, talking to the king as if he's your father, because he is. And even the Lord's Prayer says that. It says, when you pray, pray in this manner, our Father, which art in heaven, which signifies relationship. We're his children, he's our father, and he expects us to have a better relationship with him than we probably had with our own parents. Maybe you didn't have a good dad. Maybe your father wasn't the best father. Maybe you didn't have a good mom. Maybe your mother 
would never have won a Mother of the Year award. But don't forget the scripture says when your mother and father forsake you, then the Lord takes you up. He looks after you. He cares for you. So Jesus with some disciples went up to the top of a mountain as it says there in verse 28. The objective according to the final sentence of that verse was to pray. And note in verse 29 it says that he was changed by his own prayer. He was changed as he prayed. The fashion of his countenance was altered. What that means is when we talk about the countenance, we're talking about facial features, facial expressions. You know it's possible to make intercession for people and to pray for people who are passing through difficult times. And in that time of prayer, it's almost like when a spirit of grace and supplication falls on you, you begin to feel what the person you're praying for is feeling. They're passing through agony, anguish. And in your prayers, you'll find that sometimes you'll begin to cry because you're burdened by what somebody else is going through. That's what it means when you pray and your countenance is altered. But at the same time, you can be in the presence of the Lord and begin to meditate on things that God has done for you, wonderful things the Lord has done for you. Maybe he blessed you in the past or he's blessing you presently and as you're thinking about that and counting your many blessings then quickly a smile comes across your face we're talking about prayers that change you and in those times as you pray you'll find that your countenance is altered there are many people who are embittered by their circumstances they're angry at God because of this and because of that God why did you let this happen why did you not cause that to happen? Then when they begin to pray and they begin to talk to God, sometimes the spirit of the Lord works on their heart, changes their feelings, changes their thinking about a particular situation and where they once were praying with a scowl on their face. God changes it. Our Lord had a relationship with God where he didn't have to go through all of the emotions we go through because there was no sin in him, however, he prayed in such a way that the fashion of his countenance was altered and his clothes began to glow. Amazing. You've never seen anybody pray like that. I've never seen anybody pray like that. But if you would have been on the mountain and been somewhere within the, the vicinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you think you would have gotten sleepy? You know, we, we like to think that, you know, our eyes will, we stayed awake because we, we want to pay attention to, to what's going on here. But first Jesus prayed and he was changed. And then because of the prayer, the glory appeared. It's a glorious thing where Moses and Elijah make their appearance on that, that hillside. Note what it says here in verse 31 who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They were having conversations with him about his departure. How do I know that? Because in verse 31 in the KJV, where it uses the word decease, the actual Greek word underlying that word is the word exodus. They were talking to him about his departure specifically from Jerusalem. So what is the point of Moses and Elijah. Well, if anybody's going to talk about an exodus from someplace, 
These two would be the ones to have the conversation. Moses is talking with Jesus about what he is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. We know what Christ is going to do. He's going to, cro- he's going to climb up on the cross and he's going to die. But we have to rem- remember what Moses did. Supernaturally delivered as a baby, as Jesus was. Then he ended up growing up knowing what the call of God was for his life. As Jesus did, he ended up going into the wilderness and it was there in the wilderness where the Lord spoke to him from a burning bush and then called him to go into Egypt and set his people free. Millions of people had been groaning and grumbling under the weight of the bondage and the oppression of the Egyptian leadership. Moses comes in the Bible says with miracles, signs and wonders in the field or plains of that area called zone. God brought deliverance to all of them. Millions of people were broken out of slavery, led into the wilderness, headed towards the promised land, because a man by the name of Moses led the exodus. You need to know the only person who has their name in the Bible more than Moses is God. Moses is all over the scripture. Everywhere he's talked about because of how significant he was to the deliverance of the people. So Moses is here speaking to Jesus about the cross. Can you imagine what that conversation is like? Christ, you're going to climb up there on the cross and you're going to die. You're going to stand in the place of mankind and receive the judgment and penalty they should receive so that millions and millions and billions and billions and trillions and trillions of people can step out of a spiritual Egypt and move into the promises of God. Jesus becomes the new Moses. And this is exactly what our Lord and Savior is doing. He's talking about this with Moses and them up on that mountain because of the significance of it. Because of what Jesus did as our Savior leader, we've all had a personal exodus from sin. And collectively, we all had a mass exodus from sin. wonder how many people walked away from Substance abuse problems because they learned about the exodus that Jesus provided. Wonder how many people have turned to, turned their backs on bad relationships with certain people simply because they learned, I don't have to live in this filth and in this mess. I don't have to have a messy relationship. I can leave this. And the exodus begins when they learn that Christ can deliver them. A life, a family, a tribe can be changed. If we think about Christ as the new Moses. So when you think about your own individual life. You have to remember. that The only reason you're free this evening. Because of how this man prayed through on this mountaintop. Because of how he talked to God. The reason you're liberated today and you're able to enjoy the blessings of God. Is because of what Christ accomplished. Well that takes care of Moses. What about Elijah? Well let's not forget Elijah's ministry. Miraculous, supernatural. He raised people from the dead. As he went along in the ministry, God spoke to him and said, you're going to need a successor. And so the Lord said to him, you go to where Elisha is. He's out there farming right now. You take your mantle. You cast that cloak upon him. That'll be the sign to let him know, come and be your disciple and follow you. 
So that's exactly what he did. He went to where Elisha was plowing. He cast that cloak upon him. And immediately Elisha knew he needed to give the rest of his days to sitting at the feet of the man of God named Elijah. Supernatural things took place. Like Moses, who with the help of God parted the Red Sea. Elijah on a lesser scale saw the Jordan River part when he came. And as he was teaching Elisha and explaining to Elisha these things, he said to him one day, Elisha, what is it that you want from me? You've been following me all this time. What do you want from me? And Elijah, having made that statement, he waited for Elisha's reply. And Elisha got to thinking. He said, you know, when you first called me, that, that was really a great moment. He said, I'd love to have a double portion of what I felt back there in that cotton patch when you first called me. And Elijah said to Elijah, if you see me, when I'm taken up to heaven. That means Elijah knew where he was going and knew he was leaving soon. He said, if you see me when I'm taken up to heaven, your wish will be the king's command. And sure enough, you better believe it. Everywhere Elijah went, Elisha was holding on to that coattail. If Elijah tried to walk down the road, Elisha made sure he was right there walking beside him. When Elijah laid down the bed, Elisha was right there close to him, holding on to that skirt tail to make sure that nothing happened that he didn't see. Then on that wonderful day when it occurred, Elijah went up carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire, said the mantle was left behind. Elisha went, grabbed the mantle, went back to the river Jordan and said, where is the God of Elijah? And the waters parted for him. He didn't grab the mantle and shake and jerk. He didn't fall out under the power. He was happy to have the reality and he saw the miracles that Elijah did and the amazing thing about it, Elisha did exactly double the amount of miracles recorded that Elijah did. Now, here's the key. Elijah's on this mountaintop with Jesus because Elijah went up and he left the mantle and the power down here. And so our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is going to be right there in Jerusalem where he will be resurrected by the power of Almighty God. And then eventually he's going to be on a mountaintop and everybody's going to see as his feet begin to float and his body's going to go up into the air. The cloud is going to take him out of sight. But the last words he's shouting down is, tarry ye in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. The same way that Elijah went up but left the power down here, Jesus went up and the mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost became a reality in Acts chapter 2. Why in the world Moses and Elijah on this mountaintop? Because Moses is talking to Jesus about his death and that cross. Elijah's making sure they reiterate what's going to take place when the Spirit of God falls. All of it is connected with what will be accomplished in Jerusalem in the very near future. Now it's, it's interesting to me then where it says in verse 32 that Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. Do you realize you've got to fight sleep to keep from missing something that 
you're interested in. You, you got to do everything you can to try to stay awake. Like years ago when uh, Brendan and Aubrey were, you know, twins, they were little. When Tiffany and I, they were living out in the country, Tiffany and I would go over and, and visit them. And we'd stay up late at night, sometimes playing pitch. And they'd always have these weird kinds of foods they're trying to get me to eat, like cannibal meat and all this other stuff they wanted me to try. Well, well, you know, the, the twins, they never wanted to go to sleep when we were there because they didn't want to miss anything. But Brendan, in particular, when it got to where it was time for him to go to sleep, to keep from getting too sleepy, he'd stand up and he'd just go to shaking. He just, and I mean, he'd doing his arm like this and he'd shake a leg just like that. Anything to keep himself awake so that he wouldn't miss anything. Well, I bring that out because it's possible for a lot of wonderful things to be taking place. And believers get sleepy in the midst of it and don't even get to enjoy what's happening. February 5th, 1938, in the Pentecostal Evangel for the Assemblies of God, they tell a lovely story by Evelyn Lewis. The story she tells of her in India and she's sitting out of, on a veranda looking outside at all of these people that are surrounding this house and they're there for prayer. In a little village, a local Indian preacher was ministering the gospel. And a man came up to him and said, my wife is ill and dying. Would you be so kind as to pray for her? He said, I'll come and pray for her, but you just need to know, you need to believe that God will help. Well, he believed, God did help, the woman was healed. Within a few days, a few other suffering people came to the house. Several of them were made whole. After one week, they had 80 people sitting outside the house that had come for prayer. After two weeks, they had more than 200 people. The third week, the number had doubled to 400 sufferers that were coming just to have people lay hands on them and pray. By the fifth week, it said they had 700 people or so, and by the eighth week, a thousand people were out there, and that's when she was sitting on the veranda writing the story of what had taken place. And she began the testimony with this phrase, I thought I was in a dream. It just didn't seem like God would be doing this here after all the years that I've been here. Imagine that. God can begin to move and God can do things supernaturally, but we have to do what we can to open our eyes and fight the sleep that comes to us because if you run with and spend enough time with people who say God's not doing anything and God won't do anything, then pretty soon they'll put you to sleep like they are. You'll begin to believe like them. But as long as you believe your God is alive, then you'll believe that your God is able to help you in the midst of your situations. And, and I contend th this here particular point, if, if you don't believe that God does supernatural things, what is the point of prayer? Because the whole point of prayer is to ask God to do for you what you're unable to do for yourself. There's probably not a person in here got down on their knees and prayed and said, Lord, help me put on my shoes this evening. You can do that. 
And nobody probably sat down and, and, and prayed and said, Heavenly Father, well, make sure the chair is able to hold me when I sit down. But there might have been some people who went and got in their car and just right about the time they stuck the key in, they said, Lord, please make sure this thing starts. Or, or Father, you know the pain that I'm dealing with in my body right now. Would you please heal me and remove the pain? Remember, anything you can't do, that's why you get God involved. Now, I know that I, in, in, myself and you, we, we live by faith when it comes to the airplane. Because how many times have you gotten on an airplane and when you walked in and turned and went and sat down, you never even saw the pilot? I mean, the door to the cockpit was closed. There could have been a monkey up there flying the thing. You, you wouldn't have known anything. You just <laughs> sat down on the plane and just enjoyed the ride. And then afterwards, you got off and the stewardess, please fly with us again. There could have been a monkey up there on the plane flying it. But you believed. And so when you allow God to be the pilot of your life, expect that God's going to look out for your best interest. That's the key. Well, notice then, verse 32, between the last word, or that word sleep, and the following words, that means they went to sleep. Yeah, I, I told you, you've got to fight sleep, but, but sometimes you do fall asleep. I don't want you to be under the impression that just because you fall asleep, God stops or ceases to do divine things. God does a whole lot of stuff while folks are sleeping. Don't ever forget that. Peter, James, and John went to sleep, and while they were sleeping, you know what? Elijah and Moses stayed right there on the mountain. Didn't leave. Stayed right there in the presence with the presence of the Lord. Now Genesis tells us that when, when God wanted to make woman, he put man to sleep, Mr. Adam. And, and then he went to working with that rib. And he came out with a better creation than what he started with. Woman being a whole lot better than man. But he did that while Adam was sleeping. And let's not forget the, the wonderful story of Esther, the, the lady who delivered a nation. It says in chapter 6 that her, her, her uncle Mordecai, he had done something very nice to deliver the nation. And it was written down in the book. And one night the king couldn't sleep, and because he was troubled and he was sitting up, he said, hey, somebody bring me the record so I can look and see if there's anybody we hadn't blessed. And while he was looking at that, he realized, okay, we have not helped this man, Mordecai, who did good by the throne. And turned around and blessed him. But here's the thing. The king couldn't sleep that night. He was troubled that evening. He sat up. The whole thing was the plan of God. God's the architect behind it. But while all of this was going on, the whole nation was asleep. So I don't want you to think that just because you close your eyes and we put our heads on the pillow, that God isn't at work somewhere in the earth. He does a lot of things that we don't know about supernaturally. Remember the story of uh, Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream in chapter 2? He woke up, couldn't re he, 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 he couldn't really remember what the dream was all about. And he said, I, I want you magicians and false prophets and all you folks to try to figure this out. But if you can't figure it out, I'll kill every one of you. And, and Daniel stepped up and said, look, my guy who sits up there on the circles on the earth, he'll give me the answer. And sure enough, he told 
told uh, Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed, and Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt about that image with the head and gold and, and all of that. But here's the point. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in the night. God was talking to him. The whole nation was sleeping. His servants were sleeping. Acts chapter 12, verse 6, it said that Peter was in jail. He was between two soldiers and he slept. While he slept, the disciples were in Jerusalem praying. And while they prayed, the angel of the Lord came to Peter and kicked him and woke him up and said, Look, man, it's time to get out of here. How long are you going to be asleep? And he followed the angel out through the gate, was totally delivered, and then he went to the prayer meeting that he knew was occurring. And that is where they were surprised to see him. But here's the thing again. The entire city, for the most part, was sleeping. God sent an angel. So that's why I don't ever want you to think because you're sleeping physically that God's not doing something for somebody else. And it could very well be that when God's keeping you up in the middle of the night, it's because he's trying to deal with you. Yeah. I've said this over and over again, and I'll say it till I die. If you're laying in bed and the telephone doesn't ring, and you don't have a pain in your body, and nobody's trying to break into the house. But you're just laying there in the bed, and instantly your eyes open up, middle of the night, God wants to talk to you. Grab that Bible, find a place in the corner, the chair, or just sit up in, the, in, that, in that bed, turn a lamp on, just begin to read. Start somewhere. God will get you to where you need to be. But amazingly, though, all of this is going on. And as we see in verse 32, it then tells us when they were awake. So people do go to sleep on God. They go to sleep when supernatural things are taking place. Ten people can sit in the same service. God will speak to the hearts of four or five people. Two or three will walk out and say, I, I didn't get a thing. Sleepy Christian. Some people's eyes can be so drowsy to the point that it's almost like death. Ephesians 5.14, Paul says, Awake thou that sleepest, Christ will give you life. Sleepy Christians are not able to see when God's moving in somebody else's life. They're indifferent to it all. They don't even care. Sleepy Christians aren't interested in revival. They're not interested in the move of God. Sleepy Christians are only interested in one thing, finding a place to relax and recline where they don't have to deal with anything that's real. They're ready to go off into dreamland. Sleepy Christians. But you, as a believer, have to live your life before God in such a way that you can expect that when God opens your eyes, you'll see what Jesus saw. They saw Moses and Elijah. They experienced the same glory that Jesus experienced. Which leads me to my last point. The reason you can't always get along with everybody is because everybody hasn't had the same experience that you've had. And since they haven't had the same experience, they don't have a similar perspective. So when, you, when you're truly born again and you love the Lord Jesus Christ with your whole heart, you can talk to somebody who doesn't know God, and I can promise you they don't have any concept of where you're even coming from. You listen to people on that television. Listen to some journalists and people like that. I promise you they'll talk about Christians in a way you'll wonder, well, what, 
in the world kind of religion do I have if they're saying all of that? Because they haven't had a similar experience. You run into somebody that really has got up under the, the spot where the glory comes out. and has had a, a genuine Acts 2 experience where the power of God has rushed into their life and in their heart and in their soul. And by the power of God, they begin to speak with another language. And then you meet somebody who says they don't believe in that. Totally different perspective. They can't see the same thing. You take one picture, put it on the wall, have five people look at the same picture, say to them, what's the most dominant feature in that particular picture? You'll get five different interpretations. But you find some people that genuinely love God and know that this book is true. They prayed Spend time with God. When they come in contact with an unbeliever or somebody who's mocking their faith, they'll just look at them and won't even pay them any mind because they know the truth. There are a lot of a lot of Christians get offended with things that people like Whoopi Goldberg and folks like that say on those talk shows and stuff. Doesn't bother me. Doesn't bother me at all because I know that the Bible says uh, people that live in the darkness love the dark. Because that's where they dwell. But the scripture says that Jesus is the light. And the light manifests what is wrong. So we hold to the truth. Don't, don't allow people to discourage you. Believe that God answers prayer. And for the next few moments, as we take time to pray, think about that. You can pray any way you want. You can sit there in the chair. You can kneel down and pray. You can do as I do. Sometimes I stretch out prostrate. You walk back and forth however you want to do it. But what I would like for you to do is to make sure that you have a few moments to talk to him. 2019 ought to be formed and based upon your prayer life. Amen. Let's, let's begin to talk to him.